1: Among many troubling images from the pandemic were families visiting elderly relatives on either side of windows, unable to embrace. COVID-19 has deprived billions of the human touch that's not just an emotional luxury, it's a physical need. And most words have messy, long lineages, often descended from a language's earliest form. Some words, though, well, they're just made up. But that's not to say it's easy to get people to use them or to use them in the manner intended. First up, though.
2: Good evening, my fellow Americans. Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about where we are. As we mark one year since everything stopped because of this pandemic pandemic,
1: Last night, President Joe Biden spoke to America in a primetime address from the White House for the first time since taking office. He promised to direct states to make all adults eligible for a COVID vaccine by May and discussed the bill he had just signed into law, the American Rescue Plan, a $1.9 trillion stimulus program.
2: It extends unemployment benefits. It helps small businesses. It lowers health care premiums for many. It provides food and nutrition, keeps families in their
3: homes.
1: America is not the only country that's responded to the crisis with increasing generosity.
3: When COVID hit, I kind of went in, you know, it was was like a state of panic that I honestly, I can't tell you what my day-to-day thoughts were because they were just scrambled. Like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to survive? How am I going to survive? What, what, what?
1: That's Margaret Hope, a 57-year-old self-employed chef based in Canada. When the pandemic swept away all of her work, she didn't expect much outside help. After Alberta's oil crash in 2014, she received no government support and had to close her restaurant. But this time around, with COVID-19, the federal government included the self-employed in its rescue package.
3: I honestly, I, I, I couldn't believe it until I saw it myself. Until I filled out the application, I pressed submit, and two days later there was money in my bank account, and I was absolutely gone it.
1: Across the world, from America to Canada to Western Europe, the pandemic has prompted a shift in thinking about the role governments can and should play in crises.
0: We've seen the greatest expansion of the welfare state in living memory in this past year.
1: Sasha Nauta is our public policy editor. She's been tabulating that expansion, which currently stands at nearly $16 trillion.
0: That's more than four times the support that countries provided during the financial crisis of 2007-2009. And it's a sharp departure from the past, not just in size, but in shape too. And because of that, you know, this could well mark the start of a new chapter for the welfare state.
1: How do you mean? How was this response different from what came before?
0: Well, most significantly, I think it marked a risk shift from individuals to the state with governments essentially bailing out the people. So things like furlough schemes in Britain and much of Europe, as well as cash gifts and enhanced unemployment benefits in America were all sort of the state stepping up and taking on a lot of risk that otherwise would have fallen onto households and individuals. That is a sharp contrast from what we've seen over the past couple of decades when risks such as, for example, being replaced by an algorithm or a foreign worker, had actually increasingly been offloaded from governments and employers onto individuals. And you saw a lot of countries, just for pragmatic reasons really, move to universalism, so with governments preferring just blanket benefits instead of fussing over eligibility.
1: Well, what's the basis of the way that it was, though, before the pandemic?
0: There isn't one model, of course, of a welfare state, but... If we take as a starting point this idea of a social contract where there is a certain amount of poverty relief and social security that is supplied by the state. You've got to go back to sort of the early 20th century. So the Great Depression in America really triggered the idea of we need some social security. And in Europe, of course, the Second World War was really the moment when people started to realise that there were these collective big risks that they wanted to insure against. And then the big shift on both sides of the Atlantic really starts in about the 70s and the welfare state becomes leaner and more focused on getting people into jobs. And so benefits are made meaner, harder to get. The incentives for work are boosted. Welfare in many countries becomes stigmatized. And at the same time, the labor market is made more flexible. So it's made easier to fire people. And you really see, particularly from the early 90s on, more and more risks being shoveled back to individuals
1: But even before COVID hit, there was talk about a need to change things, right?
0: Absolutely. But as with so many things, COVID-19 has really shown quite a stark light on the flaws in the traditional model. And although the lessons are different for every country, there are a few general ones. The welfare state on the whole was built around yesterday's worker, a middle-skilled worker who today is increasingly rare and will become even rarer. We've seen the labour market polarised over the last couple of decades in rich countries with the share of low-skilled and high-skilled workers growing, whereas middle-skilled and indeed middle-income jobs um, have been falling and will continue to fall. Um, And, and, you know, the pandemic also related to that, highlighted how little job and income security many of our essential workers indeed have because they fall into that low-paid bracket, low-security bracket. And then the other thing that COVID has exposed is the vulnerability of workers with kids, of course. When schools closed, there was suddenly this extra job that needed to be done. The situation has put childcare, which we all knew was an issue before the pandemic, but it sort of forced it onto the agenda. And one of the encouraging things, I think, that might be coming out of this is countries making better plans for things like child benefit. So as part of the coronavirus relief plan. Joe Biden will temporarily raise the child tax credit quite significantly. And Democrats are already whispering that they'd really like to make this change permanent.
1: And do you think we'll see that pattern more broadly, a will to make permanent the kinds of changes that governments were essentially shocked into by the pandemic?
0: Whether the will is there, I think it's too early to tell but the demand is clearly there and that's an important start so lots of people such as Mrs Hope who we heard earlier have experienced the vulnerability that can come with the shock but also have seen how the state can help in these moments of shock and i think it'll be very hard in a next crisis for states not to roll out similar policy bazookas if you will to help the people so i think On the demand side, and again, this is something we already saw before the pandemic, demand strengthening for better, more generous safety nets. I think that will only grow on the back of the pandemic experience. Whether the will is there is largely a political question, and it's also a fiscal question. But I am carefully hopeful because this past year has provided a live experiment of all sorts of policies that otherwise would have taken years to get the political backing for
1: And so after all this experimentation, what are the lessons from the pandemic that that you think should
0: last? I think the most important goal here is just to ensure or at least cushion workers against sudden shocks. And just to make that a bit more practical, a lot of economists have argued that COVID has shown why the generosity of benefits should be pegged to the state of the economy so that when indeed we're going through a mass period of shock, and it's much harder to actually find a job, benefits should be more generous. And when the economy is healthy again, then you can make them a bit less generous again. So more flexibility in the welfare system. So in short, a revamped post-COVID social safety net would, on the one hand, provide enough flexibility to incentivise work, but would also have a state that wasn't afraid to step in when disaster hits. And crucially, a state that would also invest in human capital. So in childcare, in health, in educating the next generation, as well as reskilling older workers today. And that second element is important because just bringing out a huge umbrella on the stormiest of days won't be enough.
1: Thanks very much for your time, Sasha. Thanks, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes.
4: Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. with Good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
1: The pandemic has been an exercise in subtraction. For some, there are the voids left by loved ones who have succumbed to COVID-19. For others, the voids where school or a job used to be. And then there are the smaller things that are missing.
2: I do feel myself to be a touchy-feely type of person.
1: That's Larry, a 62-year-old accountant who lives alone in Chicago. He has some health problems, so since the city first went into lockdown last March, he's mostly stayed at home by himself.
2: I very rarely have come into contact with anybody that I know. Not having a hug and not having, you know, slaps on the back from friends, it, it's, it's been challenging. I also have realized since COVID has happened just how important the miscellaneous connections are. You know, you, you shake somebody's hand uh, a nurse takes your blood pressure i remember going to the doctor after like about six months of not being around anybody and the nurse took my blood pressure and it was like electricity you know it, it was just like wow boy have i missed this
1: the absence of human contact this past year has affected lots of us and it's drawn attention to a sense that's often overlooked.
3: Touch is the first of our senses to develop and the only one necessary for human survival.
1: Charlie McCann writes for The Economist and is based in Singapore.
3: Without it, we wouldn't be able to sit upright, we wouldn't be able to walk or even feel pain. It also keeps us healthier and helps us form close relationships.
1: How so? How does touch connect with all of that?
3: Humans are social animals, and like other social animals, they have developed a neurological system that is designed to respond to affectionate touch. So when you caress the skin, it activates this dedicated nerve fiber, and when that happens, it lights up parts of the brain which are responsible for pleasure. And that, in turn, releases this cocktail of hormones, so dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, And that soothes our anxiety and just makes us feel a whole lot happier. But it also has a whole raft of other positive health effects. So for instance, touch depresses levels of cortisol. This is a hormone that is produced in response to stress. And when you have lots of cortisol, that smothers a really important kind of white blood cell known as natural killer cells. They're called that because they attack viruses and bacteria. So perhaps it's not surprising that in 2014, researchers at Carnegie Mellon University observed that healthy adults who were hugged more frequently were less likely to get colds.
1: And what happens then in the absence of touch?
3: Well, so just as touch is good for us, the lack of it can be damaging. Studies of infants show that even after you control for factors like poverty and quality of medical care, the lack of touch leads to a broad range of developmental problems. So as an example, children who aren't cuddled tend to develop certain cognitive skills later than their peers, and they may even become more aggressive. And it's not bad for just children. So without regular contact, people can become skin hungry, a state in which they experience less touch than they want. The few studies that have been done into skin hunger suggest that it is harmful. For example, it's been linked to depression, stress, anxiety disorders, and secondary immune disorders, too.
1: And this skin hunger is something that's come about because of the pandemic?
3: I'm afraid not. This problem has been around for a while. And the reasons are various. So in recent decades, the number of people living alone has shot up in a lot of rich countries. And people are spending more and more time online. I talked to a professor of philosophy at Boston College called Richard Kearney. And he's talking about what he calls a crisis of touch, which is fueled by something he calls excarnation, the process in which people are forging these connections in these virtual worlds, but to do so requires us to leave our bodies behind. There were some people who were aware of this problem and trying to fix it before the pandemic. In America, young people in cities have been going to what's called cuddle parties, where the idea is you just sort of Drape yourself over another stranger and, and hope that will banish your loneliness. And in 2015, a company called Cuddlist was founded, which trains cuddle therapists.
1: Cuddle therapy, how does that work?
3: The founders of this company suspected that a lot of people are longing for platonic mutual touch that's purely about affection. And they thought that that need was not being met because of what they describe as the hyper-sexualization of touch in America. So what their company does is it has these therapists known as Cuddlists, and it puts them in touch with about 50,000 clients around the world. One of their customers is Larry, the accountant from Chicago. Even before the pandemic hit, he was really suffering from a lack of platonic physical contact in his life.
2: I I was feeling like the need for touch more. A lot of times when you're with a friend, can I have a a, a hug for a minute? That might make somebody uncomfortable. With a cuddlist, however, you can ask for something and receive it.
3: He found in his sessions with his cuddle therapist that The shoulder rubs, the hugs, the hand-holding that they were exchanging with each other. This brought him comfort, even euphoria, and, as he put it, a sense of joy. Of course, since the pandemic hit, his sessions have had to move online. He and his therapist try to evoke the sensation of touch through words and their imaginations.
2: It's not perfect. It's not as good as being there. But during COVID, it's been very helpful.
1: And... For those who don't have a a cuddle therapist, where can the skin-hungry turn while the pandemic is, is starting to subside anyway?
3: It may be that technology can help fill the void. There's a company called Cute Circuit that weaves haptic sensors into shirts, which it says can transmit the sensation of a hug using Bluetooth technology to the corresponding shirt. Between April and December, traffic to their online shop surged by over 200%. There's only so much that tech can do, though. It may be that one of the upsides of this pandemic, awful as it's been, is that it's made many more people aware of their craving for touch and of its importance.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, Charlie.
3: Thank you very much, Jason.
1: 2009, Malcolm Tucker, the foul-mouthed press secretary on the British television series The Thick of It, introduced the world to a new word.
3: Jesus Christ, see you, you are a omni-shambles, that's what you
1: are. In case you didn't catch it there, the word was omni-shambles. By 2012, its use had jumped from the fictional world of politics to the real one.
4: Even people within Downing Street are calling it an omni-shambles budget.
1: By 2013, omnishambles was chosen as the Oxford word of the year.
3: Although it's still widely used in political contexts, it has broken free of this, and you do see it being used in other contexts, which is always a sure sign that a word has been taken to the heart of the nation.
1: But getting a new word into the heart of a nation is no easy task.
4: Making up a word is pretty simple to do, but you have to get other people to use your word, and that is the hard part. Lane Green
1: writes Johnson, our column on language.
4: I suppose one of the things that makes people do it is that they tend to get known for it. If you look at a lot of people's obituaries in the New York Times, for example, you'll see lots of people who are actually famous for other things. Their headline will say, creator of the word workaholic or burnout or homophobia.
1: Okay, so say I want to join the august company of these
4: obituarized word coiners. How do I go about doing it? So this is something that Ralph Keyes, who's an American author, has looked at in a new book, which is called The Hidden History of Coined Words. And over and over again, we really find out that the words that do make it are much more accidental than you'd think. For example, the word suffragette was coined by the Daily Mail, the British newspaper, and it was actually intended as demeaning of certain radical suffragists. But the suffragettes rather liked the name, and the attack on them was something that they decided to turn into a badge of honor. The word guy comes from Guy Fawkes, the guy who tried to blow up a parliament hundreds of years ago, and it was intended as an initially demeaning word, a little bit like suffragette, but it really caught on, in this case, in America. First, as one of those words that you took on that had a negative connotation as a kind of badge of cool, and then later became entirely neutral in America.
1: Okay, I want to get away from the accidental element of this. Suppose I want to go about making a word, getting
4: it used deliberately. What can I do? Okay, fair enough. Well, most new words are actually coined from old material, much like coins are actually coined from existing metals. One way to do it is to cram two words together. This is the so-called portmanteau word. Their meaning is really obvious. You can tell which two words were chosen. I feel hangry a lot of the time, so the word hangry is really useful to me. If you really want to create a brand new word without starting from existing words, that's a lot harder and it's a lot rarer. One way people do this is for trademark reasons. Words like nylon and aspirin and heroin even were created for the purpose of a brand and have since become generic words. Other words come from literature. The word quark, which now refers to a type of subatomic particle, originally appears with that spelling in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Doofus and heebie-jeebies and words like that were actually coined in comic strips and Comic authors obviously have a sort of sense of how people actually speak and what things are fun and even funny to say out loud.
1: So say that I've minted a useful new word, a fun one even, and I've even got some people to use it. That's it. My, my fame is guaranteed. I'm going down on the history books.
0: Almost
4: definitely not. If you do get your word in broader circulation, it very often ends up meaning something that you didn't intend at all. Clayton Christensen, who teaches at Harvard Business School, really made famous the word disruption in the business sense. Didn't invent the word out of nothing, obviously, only to see that disruption has been used so widely that feels like it has no meaning any longer. So Christensen now says that he wished he had called these things type one innovation and type two innovation and made people read his technical descriptions of them. But that's the point about inventing a word. People don't want to do a lot of work. If they like it, they'll use it, and how it gets used is really not up to the word creator.
1: Now, as a man who thinks about words a lot, there is surely a one that you would like to coin.
4: Well, I haven't got my mom on this show yet, and I'd like to correct that. She has always wanted a word for one set of parents' relationship to their children's spouse's parents. What do you call the parents of the person that your child married? We have in-laws. I have a mother-in-law and a father-in-law, and my mom has decided to adopt the term outlaws for those people. So my wife's parents are her outlaws, and I rather like that one. Thanks very much for your time, Lane. Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Marguerite Howell and Kim Giddleston. Our senior producers are Chris Impey, Hannah Marino, and Sam Colbert. Our producers are Stevie Hertz and William Warren and assistant producer Jason Hoskin with additional production help from Pete Naughton. Our sound engineer is Daniel Lloyd-Evans and our trainee is Abisoye Oshindiro. We'll all see you back here on Monday.